Hello, Les Raymond here with the Mindful Movement. Whether you are about to enjoy one of Sarah's beautiful meditations or dive into a podcast interview, I would like to remind our community that the best way to support the Mindful Movement is to support the companies that make this happen. Sarah and I are very picky about the companies we choose to work with, and we are grateful to have the relationships we have and to share them with our listeners. You can learn more about our affiliates through our website by clicking on the Favorites tab. We are excited to have recently added Sunlighten as an affiliate. They make state-of-the-art infrared saunas, and their founder, Connie, came on for a recent interview if you would like to listen. Our Sunlighten sauna has been a family favorite for over a decade. Some of our most popular affiliates are the grounding mats from Ultimate Longevity, which we sleep on every night, and the Apollo Neuro, which Sarah is now wearing daily to help manage stress. When you support these brands, you in turn are supporting the mindful movement and helping Sarah and I continue to devote our time to this passion. Whether you check out these companies or not, I just want to say thanks again and reiterate how grateful Sarah and I both are for all of the support over the years. I hope you enjoy the episode. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, and welcome to the Mindful Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Les Raymond. Thanks for tuning in today for another episode. If you've listened to me, you know that I think about the human experience quite a bit, and unfortunately... I have a history of getting down about it. Um, I try to be optimistic, but I don't always (laughs) win that negotiation. Uh, But days like today, where I speak with Jared Side from the Center of Council, I have a little bit of hope restored. I am definitely inspired. I do feel that the collective suffering that permeates the fabric of this planet as a lot of healing it needs. And uh, Jared does a ton of work facilitating more social connection, more human connection in real life, in person, with real people that really need it. And the world needs nourishment like that. And I'm very grateful that Jared is out there doing it. And I had a terrific time speaking with him today. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Okay, I'm here with Jared Side. Jared, thanks for joining me on the Mindful Movement Podcast. Thank you for inviting me, Les. I'm really happy to be here. Jared, you're the Executive Director of Center for Council, and I want to start right there. I want the 101. What, what is council? That's a good question. <laughs> council is a gathering of people. That's literally what it means. You know, there's a um, a European guy who was familiar with Latin named Benjamin Franklin, who came and watched the Haudenosaunee people in a circle and said, that's a, that's a council. It, it's the Latin word concilium. So that's the word that he went to. Uh, but gathering together in a group and offering regard is something that has existed in every society. It's called Diwan and Laya Jirga in Islamic cultures. If you go to Africa, you recognize Ibidaramo and Bumble talk and dare, Ho'oponopono in Polynesian cultures, um, 
Ma'agal Hakshiva in Hebrew cultures. The uh, Quakers have a practice of devout listening that was part of the civil rights movement in, in very profound ways. Um, sitting together um, and listening, speaking one at a time from the heart, listening without judgment, um, attentively, speaking authentically and remaining curious offers the opportunity for collective wisdom to arise and for us to create this sort of container of belonging. And that's what counsel is. Speaking without judgment or listening without judgment, you mentioned. I think yeah. I am notoriously guilty of failing at that task in my lifetime. You know, I think it gives us an opportunity to see where our work is. And that's, you know, you might think of counsel as a group mindfulness practice in that, you know, if we sit together and pay attention to the present moment on purpose without judgment, we're actually practicing counsel. And that, you know, is a good working definition of what mindfulness looks like. And when we do it in a group and we give ourselves the chance to not judge what is coming up, but speak what feels alive and see the other as a person speaking uh, about whom we are curious without the need to have a stance or an opinion or judge them or put them in a, in a box. We're uh, creating an opportunity to emerge into the next version of ourselves. We're sort of setting aside what we always do as we walk with judgment through the world, judging ourselves, judging others, figuring out, are you with me? Are you against me? What do I need to say to seduce you or entrap you or convince you? All of the things that we kind of have learned to do to function in this world, stepping into counsel gives us a chance to set that aside and listen like we do, you know, at the seashore. When you listen to the waves, you know, the waves make a sound and you don't have to agree or disagree with them to understand what's happening with the surf or the, or the wind in the trees. We, in nature, we automatically go to this place of not judging. And the opportunity in counsel is to bring that same capacity for listening from the heart, listening without judgment to each other. And some extraordinary things happen when we can bring that quality of listening uh, to other humans. I want to uh, definitely go deeper into some of the topics you just um, summarized. Before that, I want to get a clearer picture of the logistics. So when you say like stepping into council, what's the structure of this organization? I mean, let me rephrase that. The organization that you're part of, what's the structure of these councils? How do these form, come about, take place? Where I know um, from doing a little research on you, it seems like uh, there's a history of using these to improve the quality within prison systems and um, police organizations, community organizations. How does that come about? What does it uh, look like logistically? And then I would love to then go deeper into, you know, how they really unfold and what people get out of it. Yeah, it's a great question. And I'm, I'm, I'm doing my best to figure it out. <laughs> uh, you know, I think starting where we started with the idea that, um, human beings crave this opportunity to show up and to feel connected. You know, our sense of disconnection and loneliness is an extraordinarily pervasive and pernicious um, epidemic, according to the Surgeon General, that's really driving us into all kinds of horrible directions like opioid addiction and violence, domestic violence, political violence, mental illness. The capacity to come together in a way and be connected with others in the shared experience of being a human being is just 
something that we are innately drawn to. And so, you know, the, the container of counsel gives some structure based on where we do it. It might look a certain way when you do it with your kids at home, where, you know, it's after family dinner, there is just a chance for everybody to pick up an object and say something that happened that day that made them smile or something that concern them or something that keeps them up at night. And in doing that, every member of the family gets a chance to sort of say where they are. It could look like something that a teacher does in a class when it's time to look to text to self connections and, and how are these themes showing up in your life. With the folks we work with in prison, and that's certainly where we've done a great deal of work, it's really a rehabilitative process for folks to recover their, their humanity. It is an opportunity to every week come to a circle and be given the opportunity to be your true self and to actually be offered the regard of people who might be your allies or your enemies out on the yard. But in council, it's a chance to just be listened to in telling a story about a time you had a crush on somebody or a time something scared you or a crazy grandpa who you know acted funny or a time that you saw something really beautiful or a favorite superhero or something. In, in telling our stories like that, we realize that we are more than the role we have been reduced to and many of us are reduced to roles like, you know, inmate or sick person or uh, impoverished person or unhoused person. The um, capacity to create a container in which we can show up and feel that we belong is really powerful, but it really requires that we know where we are. And when we, you know, we have an opportunity to sit with law enforcement, and this has been a really exciting new kind of area of work for us we understand that uh, officers are, are suffering profoundly because of the stress of their jobs and uh, learning about the autonomic nervous system, learning what sympathetic tone looks like and how parasympathetic activation can help them chill. And actually, you know, after a critical incident, come back to a state of balance. And when they leave work, go home and not carry all of the stress and tension into their families and create a toxic environment and into maladaptive responses to stress. It's really a, a wellness practice for first responders. In all of these different kinds of ways, I think you need to meet people where they are, but essentially uh, inviting folks to come together, to sit in a circle so you can see who's there, to have something at the center of the circle that represents what we're all doing here, something that is you know, a, a precious object or an object that sort of defines our purpose in some kind of way. A family has that, an organization has that, when you put it down in the center and you sort of enact the common ground, you've created something. You've you've offered an invitation to step in. And then there needs to be a stepping in, a moment where you decide you're going to speak and listen from the heart. You're not going to interrupt. You're going to be spontaneous and you're going to keep it to the essence. You're not going to go on and on for you know, the, the hours that we don't have here. Maybe each person talks for a couple of minutes. And then after we have been able to be in council and passed a talking stick around perhaps so that each person knows when it's their turn, you have to step out of it. This kind of thing can't be something that takes over the workplace or takes over the school or takes over the prison environment. You know, we do it for an hour or half an hour or two hours or something, once a week, twice a week, once a month. But you know that you step into it and you step out of it. And when you step out of it, you can navigate the agreement that you know, what we just talked about was for that time. And now we have to go back to work, but we know each other a little better. We understand the humanity. We understand who it is we're moving through the world with. And in that way, we've kind of uh, enhanced the culture of the organization. The climate on the prison yard 
the sense of camaraderie amongst the officers. It has extraordinarily powerful impact on the quality of relationships, whether it's a family or an organization or a community, to practice like this in an ongoing way. It doesn't mean it needs to be how you are throughout your day. You don't have to you know, meet everybody with, you know, hugs and, and incense and, and singing kumbaya. It's about having a place where you can actually show up in your full humanity and offer folks the gift of regard and listening to them without judging them. That sounds beautiful, man. So you just take turns going around the circle, essentially talking about whatever is inside you at that moment that you feel like needs to come out. And so I think people just observe and try and don't interpret. I think that's essentially it, but I think it's important to understand that, you know, as an organization, uh, Center for Council has really focused on social justice issues. And, you know, we, you and I, walk with a great deal of privilege in this life. We were, you know, we sort of hit the jackpot of birth. And so we have uh, ability to show up and move about the planet. There are a lot of folks who are less visible. Who, whose voice are less valued. And so when you bring a council practice into a public school or into a prison or into an environment where folks aren't used to having value in a group, just giving them the opportunity to speak is a lot. If there is a topic that the facilitator who is skilled can offer in the form of a prompt, you know, not really a question, but a, a thing we're talking about, tell a story about a time, you know, you, you thought you had everything under control and, and things went off the rails and each one of us can reflect on that, it will norm this sense that all of us have gone through having to adjust to something that was unexpected. And perhaps that's the kind of conversation that needs to happen in your organization at that time. The, the skillfulness of facilitating counsel lets us really lean into the topics that need to be talked about. So while we might want to have a check-in round where you know, what's arising for you, what's coming up, what, what's alive for you right now might be a great way to start. There's some really interesting ways we can focus on how it is we're showing up that have a relevance to the community we're in, the family we're in, the organization that we're working within, and can be of enormous benefit when we're focused on that topic. Gotcha. And you, meant, uh, you briefly mentioned about like police organizations. I can't really imagine. Um, I, I agree. I think men and women that are working in that line of work right now are under a tremendous amount of stress. I, I work at a gym, like that's the day job. And I don't work that much there anymore. Um, but there was a time where, uh, when I was earlier in my career, I just worked a lot there. Like I ne I never said no to anyone. So I would work whatever hours I had to work. And I remember coming home at night, and this is from a job that really wasn't stressful. I mean, there was no threat. There was no danger. There was really no risk. It was uh, me hanging out with a client, like reminding them uh, that it's squat day in the gym <laughs> and shooting the shit with them, whatever. But just the, and it was something I enjoyed, but just the act of being on, um, you know, coming home at dinner time. And just that stress of doing something you enjoy in a low-risk environment would still, I'd bring it home with me mm -hmm. and I wouldn't say it was a problem, but it definitely made it harder to, to connect with my family, my children, the way I would prefer to. Like there was a raciness 
-hmm. to my nervous system. And it's hard to imagine what it's like coming home when you add in the layers of the danger, you know, that daily dose of danger and risk. Um, it's hard to imagine. And I could see that, you know, having an anchor, like a weekly meeting where you're going through this really medicinal practice, it sounds like, you know, quite therapeutic, could um, give you like an anchor to connect on a regular basis, like a meditation of some sort to get you to kind of come home to be in the right headspace when the environment changes all of a sudden and you're not on patrol and you're at the dinner table. Mm -hmm. I think the, you know, the, the practice of mindfulness and the practice of paying attention, self-awareness, self-regulation, these are all such critical skills for folks who are, you know, responsible for the public safety of all of us and folks are not trained in it. You know, police training does not include this. And, you know, it's interesting, the, the, the way I found my way to law enforcement was really through the work we did in prisons, which has been extraordinary and also a very uh, problematic environment where, you know, it's really about us and them, depending on your race and your affiliation, where you come from. Folks, uh, certainly throughout California, have to pick a side. And when it's go time, you know, there's a conflict. You better be with your brothers or your sisters, and you better be, you know, ready to defend whatever it is that needs to be defending. There's a constant state of sympathetic arousal. So it's fight, flight, freeze all the time. And as humans, we don't have a lot of capacity, you know, to take our foot off the gas or better yet to put our foot on the brake for that. And so interrupting that sympathetic response by understanding what it is to do a breathing exercise or a guided meditation, understand how to do a body scan, understand what it means in counsel when we activate the prefrontal cortex, we actually interrupt that sympathetic state and when we do that, our physiology changes. You know, our heart rate slows down. We breathe deeper. We can digest our food. We can get some sleep at night. Our prefrontal cortex gives us the opportunity to talk with people and to understand what they're saying and to be relational. And all those things don't exist when we have that fight, flight, freeze. We don't hear what people are saying. We don't hear, you know, humans who are suffering, perhaps, in the case of law enforcement, to, you know, to everyone's great detriment. And I think that becoming skillful is so valuable, not just because it leads to, you know, reduced use of excessive force in communities and better community police relations, but because from a health perspective, officers are dying by some estimations, studies say 20 to 22 years sooner than the general population, just by virtue of the job they've chosen. You're giving up 20 years of your life, and this is not you know, getting shot in the line of duty. This is stress-related illness that results from this constant state of stress and the inability to go home and enjoy your family and to get good sleep. You know, people deal with stress by going out drinking and getting violent and hypersexuality and all kinds of things that are not actually allowing you to come down off of this. And, you know, the, the chronic aroused state of dysregulation is leading to premature death. And so that was our way into law enforcement is just, you know, you don't want to be one of these statistics. You want to learn ways to be able to navigate, you know, when it's go time, go. And when it's time to go home, how do we take that drive from work to home to allow ourselves to enter our family dinner in a good way so we can be a good dad or mom or partner or whatever. And 
understanding things you can do to activate, you know, mindfulness exercises, breathing exercises, paying attention is what kind of we're teaching. And the council huddle, we call it the huddling up with your, with your, you know, uh, colleagues. And so in police departments, there are huddles, council huddles that happen two, three times a week where five or six officers sit in a circle and they do a guided meditation and they do a breath exercise and then they do a council and it trains them. It's like going to the dojo or to the gym right. where you're actually training attention so that you are able to navigate that work-life balance in a good way. Like it comes up not only in terms of coming home, but also, you know, officers will talk about pulling up to a traffic stop and feeling like they're just something's with them. And that moment of like, okay, my feet on the ground, there's gravel on the ground. My, my feet feel a little bit different. It's kind of moist in the air and just coming into the present moment and learning how to pay attention changes the way they will interact with that driver when they reach the car. And they talk about how they're amazed at how things have changed in the interactions with citizens as a result of having this capacity taught to them. Gotcha. Uh, coming back to the prison setting, I find that um, fascinating. You, you mentioned within the prison, it's a lot of us versus them going on. That's structure is um, deep embedded in that, um, un unfortunately. Is the council, in within that setting, is that all voluntary? It's all voluntary. And it's kind of amazing to see how, you know, folks are curious at first. Um, I will say that, um, you know, we, we began in 2012, 2013. The first group we did, uh, we really required that it be a diverse group. So there were African-American and white and Northern Mexican and Southern Mexican. It was a, a group of folks who wouldn't normally hang out in the same room, let alone share vulnerably with one another. Uh, after that first weekend session, this group would meet on a weekly basis. But within two weeks, we had 250 people on that waiting list to try to get into that group. And then we offered another group and another group. That's We're cool. in 29 prisons now. We've trained over 4,500, about 4,800 of these incarcerated folks. And not only do they attend these weekly sessions where they self-facilitate counsel, but they bring it back to their interactions with their cellmates. And then on visiting days, you see them you know, in the visiting room with their families, passing a talking piece around. And in a sort of surprising number of cases, they're coming home. Even folks who have life sentences, the, the one prison in Blythe, California, we started a program and we had 25 folks, again, maximum security, life sentences, every single one of them got grants of parole, came back into their home communities. Three of them work for us now. Two of them are full-time employees. They've bought homes. They've oh, started families. It's incredible to have known them when they were inside and only saw themselves as a CDCR number and as a criminal, you know, with certain, with paperwork that designated them as this, this criminal, this gang affiliation to transform sitting with folks who would be their adversaries through just listening to the stories and finding a way to tell their story that was um, regarded by the group without judgment. So the trauma and the abuse and the harm that was able to kind of come through in the articulation of these stories and be held by people who would typically not give someone the time of day was so transformative that every one of these guys got out I went back to that prison, actually, this is crazy, uh, last year after COVID started to kind of ease up. And I sat at that prison with a group of guys and we did a council circle. They facilitated it. And I asked them where they learned it. And 
it turns out that they had been taught by guys who were taught by guys who were taught by guys who we had taught. So it had gone four generations in this particular prison with folks kind of sharing the practice and feeling like this is my lifeblood. This is what helps me find my true humanity and the path to the next chapter of my life. It's so inspiring. I got to tell you, Les, it's like, I, I mean, I, I'm thrilled and honored and blessed and all that to be able to be part of this and to see the impact it's had on people and their lives. And they become the greatest ambassadors and the greatest sort of teachers and trainers in this once they have found their own personal uh, journey to be so resourced and enhanced by it. It's an extraordinary thing to see. What type of institution? Was it the prisons where this process started for you? Or was it somewhere else? Like, where did you have the first uh, council? Right. So the prisons we work in are the worst of the worst. They're prisons, you know, where people are in solitary confinement for years and years. They're the level four maximum security now. And that's the 29 prisons that we're currently doing programs in. Um, but um, when my daughter was about nine years old, uh, it was just after the Rodney King riots had happened in LA and schools oh were in bad shape and when, when was that? I was a kid. I remember that vaguely. Yeah, it was the like the early 90s. Um, and uh, she was, I guess, fourth grade or something in around the mid-90s. And stuff was just really problematic. Like, you know, you didn't want to leave your kid at school because it mean girls and bullying and parents weren't getting along and teachers were pissed off. And it was it was a tough situation. Uh, I was the president of the governing board. I was very involved in the school. And I was thinking, I can't, you know, this doesn't feel good anymore. Um we heard that folks were experimenting with these council circles in other private schools in the area. And we asked them to come and show us what they were doing. Um, and so they gave a workshop to the parents and then we were able to sponsor the teachers and the teachers and the parents then were so enamored of it. They brought it to the kids in the class. And I watched my daughter, um, just the insight grow in her. So she'd come home and talk about you know, why the bully is acting this way and, and why her friend is having a, a tough day and what's happening in the environment. And there were things that sort of opened up for her in understanding who she was with and, and what they were carrying and how it all connected with one another. She became a, a writer, you know. So she you learned about this through your daughter? Exactly. Oh, I've yeah. always said our, our children are our greatest teachers. It was That's incredible. Perfect. Watching her transformation, watching that school become you know, beloved community. You know, there were still people who disagreed with each other, but we, we cared about that place. And we cared about, you know, the journey of all these folks who were, you know, having very diverse experiences. And I just, you know, I had been in the entertainment industry at the time, and I just felt like there's such authenticity here and it's doing such incredible, um, consistent, um, showing such consistent results and folks feeling better and feeling lighter and feeling more connected. I needed to kind of shift over and figure out how to do this more you know, the, the schools um, grew. And so we, at a certain point, we had, I think about 65 or 68 public schools in the Los Angeles Unified School District do, doing these programs where people would get trained and train the teachers and teachers would bring it to the kids. And then the question was, where else does this need to be? Where, where in communities can we take it? What about the incarceration problem? What about the fact that our prisons are overcrowded and the, you know, the state of California has been told by the Supreme Court that you got to get people back into community? How can we, as a newly formed nonprofit organization, bring these tools into the system and help folks make that journey back into communities. And so that opened up the possibility of us working in prisons. The first initial um, 
kind of experiments in this were so striking. You know, the, the guards were coming back and saying, I don't know what you're doing in there, but they're different. You know, they, they come out of these meetings and they're different people. Like they want to cooperate and they want to have conversations mm. instead of being in conflict. And, you know, we'd hear these stories that guys who had been building a reputation based on their ability to provide, you know, contraband, guns or drugs or whatever, they were being approached by others in the yard because someone was having a conflict with their wife or there was an argument going on with their cellmate and they didn't know how to resolve it or there was something happening at home that they were trying to figure out how to deal with. Someone was, you know, ill. And these folks were resources with life skills that became so valuable to the population of the prisons that it became something almost like a, a badge of honor to be somebody trained in this work. That's Incredible. cool. Did the, within the councils, within the prisons, well, first of all, is there, there's a moderator, of, I assume? Well, this is really interesting. You know, we we spend two days dropping in deep into the practice of counsel, the various forms of counsel, the pedagogy, understanding that there are different ways to do it, what it means to form a prompt, and that a facilitator is someone who makes it easy. You're not there to be a therapist. You're not fixing anybody. You're just facilitating a process. And then when we leave after two days, it's up to them. They go around alphabetically. Every week, there's a different person who facilitates. They know what to do. They understand how to do it. And so the group self-facilitates its way through. And we come back, you know, a month later, six weeks later, and do some additional training and answer questions and do some troubleshooting. But these groups are self-sustaining. And it's That's the same cool. way with, you know, with cops. It's the same way with medical professionals that, you know, we're teaching the skills to practice. And it's really up to folks to find a way to practice on a regular basis. And of course, in a prison, you have a captive audience. So they have their Tuesday meeting and they show up regularly. Um, you learn how to do this by doing it. And so the more folks really commit to it, whether it's in a school or in a police department or in a prison, the better they get at it and the more skillful they can facilitate other you know, groups of people coming together to do this. Are there times where it becomes uh, troublesome, where they lose track of the concept of like listening with non-judgment and things escalate, uh, people, you know, you have people that have different beliefs in a circle. Does it ever turn into a shouting match or? You know, that's that's kind of why we do this is to be able to create a space where we're not sharing opinions. A facilitator is not asking, what do you think about the policy that blah, blah, blah. They're asking you to tell a story about a time that something happened in your life. Listening from the heart um, is a little bit um, unusual for us. And then speaking from the heart is even more complicated because the way we usually speak is full of agenda. We usually use you know, communication to get something you know, done that is part of what we feel we need to accomplish. When you're asked to just say what's alive in the moment and just speak your own story, to use you know, I and me and not we or you, there's something that happens there that you know, I remember um, hearing that Barack Obama, before he was even in the Senate, would uh, have these town meetings when he was a community organizer, and he would ask people to tell a story about the healthcare system and how it impacted your family or about someone in the military. And so you had a room full of people sharing a story, and you can't disagree with someone's story. You know, you can not listen to their story, but it's your story. That's all you got. And somehow each person showing up and being authentic just creates an opportunity for others to listen and learn a little bit. And if a facilitator can hold that intention strongly, as opposed to having a debate or as opposed to keeping people in concepts or ideas or beliefs or opinions, uh, something beautiful emerges. And it happens pretty consistently. It's, it's not often that folks wind up doing something 
that takes it sideways. Sometimes, you know, a story will become upsetting and the response is, gosh, when you told that story, this was what came up for me. And that, you know, may lead to feelings of, you know, disruption, um, but it is something, you know, the form itself of counsel becomes so valuable. Uh, folks protect it, even folks you wouldn't expect, even, you know, hardened police officers who come in with their arms folded and rolling their eyes like, ah, I'm not going to talk about my feelings. When you, when you talk about that person who inspired you, the coach that saw your potential, you know, the person that was always there for you and had your back, something tender emerges and you recognize the fact that being vulnerable leads to trust. And folks often get that backward. They think that you got to be trusting in order to be vulnerable with one another. And I think over and over again, we realize that vulnerability actually is the thing that primes trust. And when trust emerges, it feels good. It feels like you're part, you belong, you're, you, the community is there for you. And that practice of vulnerability is not something we tend to train in. We don't, we tend to ignore that vulnerability is a critical component of any courageous act. You have to be vulnerable and being vulnerable is something that it can be a strength if we can hold it that way. So we talk about that a great deal and speaking from the heart is an act of courage uh, that requires vulnerability. And it's, you know, it's very simple, but it's not easy. Right. What is it tapping into? I mean, is this, I'm sure it's tapping into more than one thing, but underlying like this uh, need to, fit in to be to be seen to fit in with a with the community um is it like the fact that it's providing this very deep embedded need that we all have that is just missing mm -hmm. um and how part of me feels like it's missing and conversation is missing too and that you know the the council is small, you mentioned. It can be as small as two or three people. It can be as large. You know, we do it in groups of 200 to 300 folks. Oh, really that big. But so oh, yeah. I, like I've heard that, I mean, it's funny. I just watched um, on Netflix recently, this documentary show series, short series called Chimp Empire about following chimps, uh, mm. like a tribe of chimps. And it's interesting, I had no idea how dynamic the like social relationships and the politics of the tribe were. It's fascinating. But it reminded me that like there's part of us that you know we're designed for like a certain size. And then as and part of this is technology, you know, now that we could travel or we can communicate and our society's grown so large and it's it's hard, it makes it more challenging and more of an uphill battle to stay connected with the idea of fitting in yeah. because it's like relatively you're smaller mm -hmm. to the you know relative to the pile of people yeah. whereas it was probably not as hard when communities were 150 200 people deep and so there's like this need that just emerges out of the natural growth of how the population grows. And you combine that with the cultural and societal pressures or norms that are taking it away at the same time. Right. And, it, and it really manifests as, um, you know, a hole that needs to be healed in a way, you know, within us. This is a huge issue. And I'm, I'm so grateful to... Um, the Surgeon General. I mean, Vivek Murthy is saying some things that are, that are extraordinary. And in fact, just this week, the Surgeon General re uh, released an advisory 
um, on the epidemic of loneliness and isolation um, and the healing effects of social connection and community. It's an 80-page advisory. It's akin to, you know, Everett Koop saying smoking is bad for you. We've got to stop it. This is such a critical issue, and it underlies so many important, uh, you know, crises that we're facing from physical health to, you know, um, as I said, violence, things that are tearing apart our society. Humans are wired for social connection, and we have become more and more isolated over time. Um, social connection is as essential to our long-term survival as food and water. The uh, ill effects um, of losing that are, by some studies, uh, thought to be as bad as smoking 10 cigarettes a day as far as how it impacts our health. This is a, this is a crisis, and we need things we're not getting. Um, having an opportunity to come together in this way improves our health and our well-being, again, on the individual level, the relational level, and also societal level. And so these structures that provide that kind of invitation are, like you say, it's like medicine. It's more than medicine. It's nourishment. And we are malnourished. And I think, you know, we're, we're facing a moment where um, coming out of COVID and seeing what effect that had on the health of folks and mental health, emotional health, physical health, and also beholden to social media that wants us to get riled up about the things that we believe and look at, you know, other opinions as being the enemy, the sense of us and them that comes from what we're being fed all the time in social media and the political discourse, I think has got us really agitated and really isolated. And that's a really dangerous place to be. We need ways to come back. And our society doesn't have a lot of you know, easy opportunities, like you say, to come together in a group of folks and actually feel seen and feel like your voice matters. And I think that, you know, our organization and certainly many others are really committed to creating these structures, whether it's for a family that just wants to feel more connected or to improve the climate in a school or the health of officers or, you know, results, rehabilitative results and reducing recidivism for uh, incarcerated folks. I think, you know, it all kind of revolves around that same quality and, I'm thrilled to be able to, you know, offer this to folks. I think, you know, it's not something that I invented or any one of us did. It's a, it's a thing we're trying to recover that we know that right. cultures have always had um, as just a norm, and we've kind of lost it. Speaking of cultures, so uh, you've done this around the world in different mm -hmm. places. Yeah, indeed. What do you notice uh, when you do this in other places? Is it fairly consistent, like the human condition, the response to the process? Do you, do you see any variation or things that stick out where in certain areas, certain cultures, it unfolds a little differently? For sure. Uh, you know, I think that folks carry trauma in, um, it's very much related to place and culture. And um, the, the, the key in this and in many practices, nonviolent communication, all that is to speak into the listening, to really meet people where they are, understand where they're coming from. I was just... Uh, couple of weeks ago in, in Ireland and the kind of trauma that folks carry with them, you know, Irish folks and, you know, not just the troubles, but even going beyond that, families, neighbors, you know, the country ripped apart is something that is present, but not, not talked about, rarely talked about in a direct kind of way. Whereas when we did this work in Bosnia, Herzegovina, you know, folks are just like, can't stop talking. There's a kind of a humor, a dark humor about you know, that sort of mass shooting, remember when that happened and this grave site over there and the massacre over there, there's a, a real kind of almost grotesque uh, desire to kind of really get into the nitty gritty of the trauma that they have experienced. 
practicing like this at in Oswissum in, in Auschwitz on the uh, selection platform with the descendants of people who survived the Holocaust and descendants of guards who were stationed there at Auschwitz. Oh, and wow. sitting in a council circle is an extraordinary thing because you have this generational trauma that folks are carrying. You know, my my ex-wife carried a sense that, you know, whenever she heard anyone speaking German, it just set off all kinds of things. She had to kind of head in the other direction because it was so traumatizing just to hear the German language spoken, certainly by older people. There's so much folks carry into that and it's incredible to create a space where folks are just able to tell their story. And in, in telling that story, there's a, there's a great unburdening because you know, you're bringing to the surface something that you've carried and hidden and exerted a lot of energy to hold down. There's that sort of, a, I guess it's a Swedish proverb that, that shared joy is double joy and shared pain is half pain. And there's something about how collectively we can help each other move through and we need to be in a space at a time because the way it works you know, in Bosnia is not the way it works in you know, Pine Ridge where we work or in Rwanda. You know, I, I sat in a circle in Rwanda with Hutus and Tutsis and there were folks who were so traumatized by what they had done sitting with folks who had you know, limbs chopped off in the same circle. And this sort of sense of, you know, I, I live with so much guilt and can you forgive me? And in that conversation, someone saying, you know, I'm not ready to forgive, but I'm ready to sit in a circle and talk to you. And maybe over time, there'll be some healing. You know, I have a field that needs to be worked. And maybe if you worked in that field for a while, you know, we get to know one another and how the trauma of being in Rwanda and, you know, having gone through the, the genocide against the Tutsis, how that plays out in that circle is absolutely unique to that time and place. But the process remains the same. If we show up and allow ourselves to just be present and to tell our story and to listen without judgment to the others, something happens, something emerges that is uh, extraordinarily healing and therapeutic. And it, again, it's not therapy. No one is there to be a therapist or to fix anyone, but there is something incredibly therapeutic about just creating the opportunity for folks to authentically tell their story and for others to just listen and not judge, but listen with an open heart and with some curiosity, something, yeah. something shifts. Yeah. Curiosity. We are, I know, um, we're not good listeners in this country, at least the part that I'm exposed to, it seems. I'm, it's interesting. You mentioned like political divides earlier and something I notice, and I'm not going to get political here, but something I notice how people talk about the others. Mm -hmm. Everybody see, not everybody, many, it's common for people to think they know why someone from the other side of a aisle or position feels or believes the way they do like they impose the reason they think that person feels that way and then the other side does the same you know these people liberals feel this way because of this uh conservatives feel this way because of this mm -hmm. but they're always wrong it seems because, <laughs> because what they'll say is never what the other side says yeah. why they're doing it it's just yeah. that it's like they don't know any close enough right. to have a real conversation mm -hmm. and listen with an actual desire to understand why where they arrived at their beliefs they have no idea but we we think we do and and i think whether you know you're listening to 
Sean Hannity or Rachel Maddow, you know, whatever station you're tuning to, I think you're you're getting that sense of confirmation bias that of course this is the way it is. This is these are people, these are figures that I tune into all the time and they're confirming what I believe and it makes you less curious. It makes you right. less eager to really hear the story and just hear the story. You're just looking for ways that my bias is confirmed. You see, there he goes. That and that clip shows that it must be what I believe and that way of listening is listening from up here. When you shift to the capacity to listen from the heart and set that aside for just a minute and just, just listen to the story and at the same time, give, be given the chance when the talking piece comes to you to just speak what's coming up for you so others can hear that, something shifts from that way of listening and speaking with agenda. And it really is, it's so critical that we do that. I mean, we're, we're going in a direction and, you know, speaking of places like Auschwitz and Rwanda, you know, there is a slippery slope and it starts with thinking you know the other, that the other is less than, that the other doesn't really deserve rights, that the other is, you know, kind of less, you know, clean, less smart, less capable, and so they deserve less. And then that leads to laws, that leads to biases, that leads to things that result in, you know, what happened in Rwanda, what happened in, you know, in, in Europe, in the Holocaust. It's really incredible to watch the process that goes on with humans. These aren't, you know, aliens and robots and bots. These are actual humans that are somehow convinced that the other is not only someone you disagree with, but someone who doesn't deserve the, the same courtesy you would show another human. They don't deserve the same resources. They don't deserve the same respect. And that's a really scary thing. And to have gone to places where it's led to such horrible violence and massacres and genocides you know, we got to wake up around this where, you know, there's some stuff happening in our culture now that is really reminiscent of some really ugly, ugly times in, in humanity and the way we deal with one another. And I think there's some things that need to happen that bring us together, right, left, you know, and, and you know, uh, uh, across every binary that we've created that give us a chance to really get to know the other and break okay. that down. For us, you know, this idea of beyond us and them is what's so up you know, in, in our time, that there is a place in which the person you disagree with um, may be your adversary when you have a debate, but when you talk about their experience, when they talk about, you know, a, a story from their past or a favorite superhero they used to love or, you know, something they, they do with their kid that they enjoy, something else shows up. It's not just their opinion or who they voted for, or what political party they align with. There's something in their story that you realize you share. And I would venture to say there is way, way more that we share as a commonality than those things that divide us. We just don't take the time to listen to those stories. We get caught in the politics of it and the belief system of it. And so we realize, yes, of course we disagree, but we're also humans that are on this planet, breathing the same air. And the descendants of this person and, and my descendants are going to have to get along you know, years from now. So can we find some kind of common ground? Can we move beyond this sense of us and them? I think it's really important that we instill practices that bring that back online because so much is working against that. Well, it's good to have tools. And I mean, clearly you're playing a big role in bringing one of those tools to fruition. Um, another tool is compassion. You wrote a book last year mm -hmm. called Where Compassion Begins. Um, you know, I know that it's, it's hard to like, you mentioned, you know, we got to bring together. Unfortunately, when you're in like a stressed state, it's like, it's harder to, it makes it harder. It's like a more uphill battle. Things like compassion or empathy become more challenging. We lean towards more of like a survival state. 
and we don't we're more likely to treat others like other yeah um how did so what drove you to write that book and how is compassion uh, a tool that we could like tap into yeah you know i i want to first sort of say that i think stress is a really important thing for you to name i'm glad you pulled that out and stress is not bad per se you know we need stress stress is what helps us get things done when it's time to do things and understanding the autonomic nervous system and the interplay of sympathetic and parasympathetic arousal is a really important and valid thing. And we can see the science in it now. When we are in a stress state, we are good at running and fighting and jumping away from the bus that's coming towards us and taking care of business that needs to be taken care of. And we're not good at digesting and we're not relational and we're not good at understanding. Our pupils are, you know, uh, are dilated in such a way that we can't read, you know, when we are sympathetically aroused in order for us to revert back to a place where we can actually build community, build relationships, get in tune with our own health and our you know immune system, we need to be able to navigate. So there's a cyclicity and we need to maintain the cyclicity of sympathetic and parasympathetic you know arousal. We won't sleep at night, we won't digest our food. We'll actually get sick if we can't create a good balance. And it doesn't mean never be stressed. It means understand how that works in our lives and you know activate that stress response when needed and understand that we can shift when it's time to get some rest. It's time to have a romantic dinner with our partner. It's time to, you know, hang out with our kids or whatever it is we're doing, write some poetry, read a book. Those things are no longer, um, you know, important for us. And so there's sort of an education, I think, that is um, critical and the practices that most uh, readily and quickly and effectively help us shift are these Contemplative practices, practices like mindfulness or simple breathing exercises, body scanning, understanding, you know, how it is that we can, in a, in a you know, your, your, your parents told you count to 10 before you do anything, if you're really upset, and I just count to 10, and just the act of counting to 10, you're activating your prefrontal cortex, you're creating, you know, a sense of numbers and, and abstract thought. That was a neurological intervention that helped you interrupt the sympathetic arousal in that moment, though your parents wouldn't explain it that way. So a lot of these practices that we're interested in teaching folks help in that sort of navigation. I think that, you know, I spent a lot, a beautiful two years in a chaplaincy program led by uh, Dr. Joan Halifax at Upaya in, um, in Santa Fe. Uh, Joan Halifax is a great scholar of compassion. And what she found after um, doing a lot of research on this is that compassion can't be taught. It's not teachable but that compassion is made up of non-compassion elements that are trainable. So as we understand how to work with our attention, how to understand what, self, what self-awareness means to us, how to you know, really observe the physical phenomenon of breathing, of moving through the world, of the stress in our body, how to understand the negative thoughts, the inner critic, the catastrophizing we do and our emotional dysregulation, you know, coming um, into a, a ability to be, to attune ourselves, you know, to our own, you know, internal system and to the system of others, to be able to be sensitive and attuned. These are all qualities that are taught in our programs, that the book kind of helps to explain, and that are reinforced in these council circles. And I think practicing in this way, learning how to take a backward step, learning how to interrupt this stress response, creates conditions in which compassion can arise. And compassion is not just the ability to listen to someone 
and to hear their suffering, but then to choose effective action to do something about that suffering. And when I say effective, it means what's my capacity? How can I help in this moment? You know, how can I give something that's not going to deplete me? Compassion does not leave out our own internal understanding of what we have the ability to do, nor does it turn away from something we observe. It's not pity. It's not even empathy. It's, you know, feeling a thing and then acting on that thing and acting in such a way that preserves our own uh, capacity and our own resources so that we're not depleting ourselves and, you know, falling into what, what Joan Halifax calls pathological altruism, which is something that often is it leads to what, what folks understand to be empathic distress and things like this. There, there are skillful ways to deal with our own dysregulation and what we observe in the world around us that I think can be really beneficial to others and to ourselves, can lead to more resilient health, can create you know, more cooperative and, and, and positive communities. And I think it begins with understanding how to self-regulate, how to become more self-aware, and how to listen better. And from that, I think we find ourselves in uh, in an environment in which compassion arises. So wait, how, how are you actually defining compassion then, Jared? Like so the capacity to truly listen to another in a way that you know, allows you to set aside all of your beliefs and really bear witness to another, and coupled with that, the choice to do something about that. So if somebody is suffering, we are taking action. If somebody is feeling joy, we are allowing ourselves to be enjoying their happiness with them. It involves our own activating ourselves beyond just listening to that person or falling down a rabbit hole with them. And it, it's important to understand that that compassion uh, requires that not only we feel a thing, but that we do a thing. I guess in my head, I've always held it um, more like, what is it like for them? What would it be like for that person? Which is the true definition of empathy. And feeling empathy, whether it's emotional empathy or intellectual empathy, really gives us a chance to get in their shoes. And that can be a very valuable thing to, to sort of see the, what it is they're seeing or feel what it is they're feeling. And then the choice is, you know, either to go down the rabbit hole with them and to suffer with them or to ignore them. That's where we begin to look at what compassion looks like. Because compassion doesn't just stop at empathy. Compassion really takes it to that active choice as a result. You know, so I think there's a- What do you, I'm sorry to cut you off no. there. <laughs> Here, look at me listening. Um, what do you mean by action? So you, you have an empathetic moment. So somebody uh, sees someone else's experience or hears someone's experience. So they, they listen, they empathize, but you're saying compassion is a layer of action on top of that. What you do as a result. You could, you know, call the police. You could say, hey, you need anything. You could turn, you know, and sort of seek help. You could move towards them. If you allow yourself to be moved and then to take action that is appropriate action, that is not action that puts you in danger or creates more of a sense of suffering, then you're actually activating compassion in that moment. And compassion arises in the action. It's not just the feeling, you know, just you know, feeling sorry for someone or liking something on social media or, you know, a thumbs up doesn't enter the realm of compassion. You might, you know, act empathically, you might have an empathic connection, but if you completely cut yourself off from any sort of action, there's no compassion there. I'm going to have to sit with that for a little bit. Um, it's definitely 
feels a little different than how I've been sorting the that word in my mind um, in the past. It does remind me of a experience I had uh, several years ago. It's really unfortunate. My, I had this cat, Walter, mm. and uh, died in a very unfortunate way. And uh, it was really devastating to me. It was abrupt. Mm. And in that day, I had to go to work and a client of mine who was also like a, a friend, a peer, like most of my clients are older, but some of them are like, you know, rarely I get someone that's like my age and it's like a different type of relationship I'll, I'll build. And I became pretty close with this guy and I tell him what happened. I mean, this is an hour after maybe two. And he says, my neighbor's dog got run over like recent like like he was trying to one up me <laughs> like he was putting the value of the dog over the value of my cat here i am like freaking miserable you know and i was like that was the worst thing to <laughs> say mm -hmm. and then i talked to my father and he says well at least you have your family at least you have you know, your health. And that didn't feel good either. Mm -hmm. And I talked to my mother and, and she's like, I'm just, just so sorry for you. This must just feel so like, she just like held space mm -hmm. for me to feel like shit. And I was like, uh, -huh, that's, that's a different thing. So in that, in that, you know, scenario, there are three different responses to, you know, seeing you suffering and the skillful action perhaps was holding that space and letting you not feel judged or not feel one-upped or anything. These, these choices that we make um, are critical and it really defines our character when we are confronted with somebody who's having a hard time. Any kind of experience that moves us requires of us that we figure out, now what do I do in response to this so that I can make the situation better? And that sometimes, you know, requires just not saying anything, certainly not feeling like you need to fix the person and take away their experience. I think that that um, skillful response to perceiving suffering is where compassion arises and where we can really be a benefit. And I think, you know, it's, it's tough. Sometimes people get it wrong, but it's also yeah. important that we take action. It's important that we are driven to take action based on the person in front of us and knowing you less as hopefully your, you know, your dad and your mom, at least, I don't know about your client, but, you know, having an understanding of who you are would factor into what I might do that would be a benefit. Not that right. takes me off the hook, but also, you know, kind of creates um, a little bit of something that eases the suffering in this moment. And I think that that idea of easing suffering is underlying the concept of compassion. It can't just be you know, kind of go blank and disappear from the scene. It has to be, now what do you do? What do you do that's effective? What do you do that's going to be a benefit? And also a benefit to you. You can't, you know, reach into your wallet and give somebody all your money because you don't have money. You can't right. spend an hour talking to somebody when you have to be somewhere else because you're going to disappoint the person you need to go to. But you need to make a, a skillful and discerning decision in that moment that allows you to be a benefit. And I think that's where the compassion arises. I find myself making this mistake off. Well, I don't want to judge my, here I am judging myself. It's a mistake. Um, I am like been passionate for a long time about health and wellness. Mm -hmm. So I'm always learning and I've learned a good bit. I think, you know, 
I, I believe that knowledge is the biggest obstacle to understanding. So I try not to pretend like I really know stuff, but but I know more than the average person about like the relationship of food to physiology, just because, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hours upon hours of, of learning. Mm -hmm. And I'm always like working on my health and I'm in the profession of helping people improve their health. So that like backfires me sometimes in this realm, like someone in my family will say something maybe something's bothering them and I will default. Like I want to fix it. Mm -hmm. Like, and that's useful. Um, and like you said, it might, it should depend maybe on, well, who the person is, you know, what's their current situation? What's the context of that? But I know there's times where I, I do feel for them and I feel and see their suffering but me trying to impose my ideas how to fix it is probably not the best way to express compassion. Even, the, even if I'm right, even if like the intervention or my idea would work, like it doesn't matter. It's not necessarily the right thing to do. And I find myself over the last year or so seeing myself do that more. And I, so I have a little of awareness of it. But it's um it's definitely a trap I find myself falling into, and mm -hmm. I have a history of it. And I'm sure I did it for a while without any awareness that I was doing it, without any awareness of like, shut up, you idiot! Like this is your daughter; she doesn't need to hear that from you. She needs a fucking hug. Like she doesn't need you to tell her how to fix it. Um, I, you know, I think that that awareness is so powerful because sometimes people do want help with something, and you need to know when they're asking for it. But also the capacity to just listen just to offer the regard and to be that space where someone can speak. And, you know, the, the practice of counsel that we, you know, continue to put out there as a practice and like meditation, like exercise, like, you know, taking a walk in nature, you're doing this as it has therapeutic value. I think having the capacity to not be reactive, to really wait till it's your turn, even if the person is going to, you know, you're, you've got to listen to three or four or five people, that there's a value in holding that space and offering that regard that the person feels from you that you care enough to sit there for five minutes or 10 minutes or whatever, and let them get to the end of their story. That, you know, certainly for those who are more used to being the ones talking, that can be a really great, um, valuable skill to bring online, because sometimes people just need that. And that can, you know, work wonders in terms of their feeling seen and heard and supported that you just gave them the time to tell their story. I think it's a it's a huge asset. And again, it it depends on the situation. You got to know, you know, what what it is that feels skillful and feels appropriate in the moment. And part of it is recognizing that, you know, I mean, I, I know that there's an answer here that I would go to, but there might be something else beyond this. I might, if I listen a little bit longer, realize that this is one solution, but maybe this also could exist. Maybe there's a third thing. That's What's a go-to? Go um, so let's say someone wants to flex the muscle of compassion to become a more compassionate person. And they're actively paying attention to you know how they listen to people. Let's say somebody is confiding in you and they're you know discussing the suffering of their day or whatever's going on. And you, you're consciously listening, you're intentionally not interrupting, you're actively trying to understand what's going on with them. And, 
And then are there like some lines, some a framework of the first question like are there some go-to lines that you use that you lean on in those situations that people could use as a applicable strategy to integrate more of a compassionate like approach or lifestyle to their relationships after you listen and it's your time turn to speak what do you say um you know, I think that there isn't really a hack for this that doesn't really start with oneself. You got to kind of really give yourself the space to do this. And so practices like meditation, even like centering prayer and, you know, time alone or time, you know, exercising, you, you begin to develop the capacity to understand what's going on in your body and to have a, a relationship with that. You become kind in terms of, like you say, what you eat, what you put in there, the kind of sleep you get the water you drink. There's the physical nature of you. There's the mental nature. And we're constantly creating this negative self-talk that often brings us to like horribleizing, catastrophizing, dread. Being caught in that is another unkindness that we can bring compassion to where we say, okay, well, that's that's the future. I can't do anything about that. And the stuff that's already happened, got to let that go and just be present in the moment and bringing yourself to the present moment mentally there's the emotional version of that and there's certainly the relational as well and again it's it's in the book i believe that we must begin by exercising self-compassion it has to start there and i think it's it's kind of that oxygen mask in the airplane thing it's like this is you know you got to be a self-scientist you got to really cultivate that compassion for yourself physically mentally emotionally and relationally even spiritually in terms of, you know, what, what you're doing and what its significance means and why you're doing what you're doing and what the impact is going to be, whatever your tradition is of thinking of that, these larger questions. And I think then in creating that capacity, you share that with another by what, you know, uh, I guess the naval term is coming alongside. You, you think in your mind that instead of having a, a interaction with somebody where it's you and them and you need to like give them a little and then they give a little back, Think about what it means to come shoulder to shoulder with somebody. Gotcha. As a, as a naval vessel might do. I was looking for a more direct hack, Jared. I know. I know. <laughs> it's funny. We make light of a, of a um, example. What was it? In my household, it's kind of, I guess it's like a running joke in some way. Uh, years ago, my wife and I were at a, like a weekend meditation retreat and um, the, the guide was um, guiding us through a uh, one of the guided meditations. And I think we were like, uh, if I recall, like shedding light on a feeling or emotion that we were dealing with. She asked questions like, where is it in your body? And then, you know, you'd go through that process of feeling that out. And then you'd assign a color, like if it had a color, what would it be? And not that that's not useful. Like it was a great practice. It was a Fantastic facility, fantastic facilitators, it was a great experience. But in my house, we uh, were like childish and immature, and especially my wife. Um, <clears throat> and we'll use that. So, like, if somebody complains in the house, we'll be like, "Oh, where do you feel that in your body? What color is that?" And we'll like take jabs at each other, mm -hmm. you know, pretending to be. I don't know. Uh, pseudo spiritual compassionate people or something but um 
Yeah, but but I was looking for more of like an actual answer. Like that's a you know ridiculous answer, but I was thinking, are there just certain phrases that so that you could like shape, so you could take your thoughts of how you want to be there for someone and like put them to shape easy. And then you could flex that muscle and practice and then let that practice grow. But I guess you're, you're saying start with yourself. And I, that's, I think, yeah, I'm sorry, Leslie, I can't give you something a little bit more, uh, you know, kind of like the, 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 the reduced version of this, but I don't, I don't, I think it, it becomes manipulative. You know, some people like um, things like motivational interviewing, where you lead folks by the questions you ask. And I just feel like being present with somebody, learning how to truly just listen and be curious to to be present and to be surprised to notice those things that you know you weren't expecting and to when you kind of get to the point where you see yourself come going to that solution well if you only did this and you only did that and here's a plan for you and I could come back to just being present in the moment and being you know being somebody who can just offer regard gotcha. i think that capacity to be truly there is something people feel they feel when you're thinking about something else or thinking about the thing you're going to say or, you know, that's kind of like my dog who died or whatever. That That's something that's just so disrespectful because you didn't give the person the time to really be in their feeling and let them get to the end of it. The practice of counsel, you know, gives folks a chance to hold a talking piece. And when they're done, they hand you the talking piece and then it's your turn. So it's pretty much like organized around the props of the thing such that, you know, you know, you don't have to like, oh, did I leave enough time or when do I interrupt? You know, you talk when you get the talking piece. And then when gotcha. you give the talking piece away, you don't talk anymore. And you wait and you listen. And I think that practice instills in you that there's a great benefit in noticing when your attention veers off and bringing it back to the person you're listening to. They will appreciate it. They will feel that kind of presence. They will feel seen. And being seen and being heard is such an incredibly nourishing thing from anybody, whether it's a partner or a trainer or you know a colleague at work. Just the fact that somebody took the time to see you and listen to you and give you the space to talk, it's a huge gift. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I agree. Um, you mentioned a moment ago um, waiting to think about what you're going to say. That's something I know that I used to do a lot, and I and now I see it everywhere. Like you see people doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, I I started with my podcast taking notes better because it allowed me to like dump something real quick so that I could stay with the person. Otherwise, it'd be turning in my head waiting. And and I think that probably your guests could sense that and certainly your partner and I'm sure your wife and your kids, right. there's something about knowing that someone isn't really there for you that really affects you. And, it, and it's kind of like, it's disrespectful. It's kind of like a sense of, you know, all right, well, I'll just sort of peer out here and not say the thing because, you know, you're clearly not paying attention to me anymore. The, the gift of attention, the gift of regard is huge and it's a beautiful offering. And I think it actually has a capacity for groups to function in a much more productive way. And I'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan of that. And I think yeah. it's also a skill. It's like a muscle. You got to go to the gym and you got to build it. Flexible, you know, it's, yeah. it's like a thing that doesn't just come naturally to some, and it needs to be reinforced with constant practice. You mentioned that word regard. I like that word for that. Uh, um, I know when I was, I used to have a pretty nasty drinking problem. And that's definitely something that drugs and especially alcohol do like that disengagement where you're in a conversation with somebody, but you're not really in the conversation with somebody or like you're not in it for them at all. Um, And I think that is also like rampant in society. For sure. And, you know, I think that you will find in your interactions with, you know, those you're close to 
that things improve relationally, but watching, you know, even a group of hardened cops sitting around kind of rolling their eyes and like, oh man, one person tells a story about a friend who committed suicide or somebody who's suffering and they're, they get real. Everyone starts to kind of like lean in like, oh man, I'm sorry. And there's that moment of like, and when somebody else then says, well, you know, you told that story and now it's my turn and I have a story. And then they tell their story. Something starts to emerge in that group that feels really connected and seeing people go from that sense of like, you know, cynicism and, you know, a bunch of idiots and I don't care about this. I'm not talking about my feelings to that just got real. And that reminded me I'm carrying some real stuff too. And if I have the opportunity to tell my story and no one's going to interrupt me, it's going to help me. And that person who is suffering, who told their story and seeing the leaning in, they're helped by that too. There's something so beautiful about seeing that happen, even in the most unexpected ways. And of course, with your family, you know, folks will feel happy that they're getting a chance to talk. But in an environment where it's just not normed, that, that what is going on inside is something you're not supposed to bring to work. You're not supposed to bring to the job. It just means you're soft and vulnerability is something to run away from. That's a that's a real problem, and I think you know I'm glad you mentioned drinking. I think substance abuse is a you know huge go-to for folks who are feeling stressed and don't have any other release for it. It's unfortunate because the maladaptive response to stress that that can you know kind of uh, lead to is bad for the health, bad for the relationships, bad for job performance. Is no good comes from that, and I think uh, folks can be a lot more healthy and you know, beyond that, your blood pressure, your, you know, cholesterol, your weight, your exercise, all of that improves so much when you feel engaged, when you feel seen, when you feel connected. And, you know, we, we, we see with the cops that we have trained, you know, we have officers who've been with us for three months, they go to the doctor and the doctor's like, you know, you don't need to take this blood pressure medicine anymore. I don't know what's going on, but something is happening that's different. And it has to do with this training. You know, they're developing skills, meditation, mindfulness, all of these things are intervening in ways that medicines, you know, do as well, but not as effectively and have side effects. So if you can bring about skills that actually improve your health and improve the relationships and your performance, and they're free, and you don't need a prescription for them, or to, you know, kind of screw up your body in the process, why not try? Yeah, and to think over the last few years during the pandemic, like how many people up their drinking and up their substance abuse and how much of that probably emerged from that disconnection with people. It's kind of unfortunate that that, that cost of, I mean, I don't want to get political, but the cost of the policy around how everything was handled, the cost of that disconnection that was being imposed on people just didn't get any um, like if you talked, like people that talked about that got, got shut down, mm -hmm. you know, as it, it really got, it didn't get the attention that it needed. And people mm -hmm. saw it, people saw it happening when people in their lives, they felt it themselves. And it wasn't discussed in the public view very much that this is a problem having people separate from each other. Like we are a tribal species, we need each other. I, like I remember times like my a lot of my community, I don't have a lot of friends where I don't really have a lot of friends, but um, going to work was like such a big sense of my community, just hanging out with my clients, 
talking about what our children, you know, whatever is going on in our families or at life's a time while, you know, they're working out and, um, you know, just kind of reminding them what weights to lift or whatever. And that little thing, like I didn't realize how much of an impact that had on me, just like being in the room with person talking and about mostly stupid stuff. Like, we, and when it got taken away, because I was deemed non-essential, <clears throat> no resentment in that comment. Um, <laughs> I found myself uh, quite alone. And I remember there were times where I'd go for, I'd started walking a lot more and I'd put a podcast in my ear and just having like a conversation in my ear was like the difference in me not feeling totally alone. Like, even though, yeah, I'm not in the room with these people. They don't know who I am. I'll probably never meet these people, but having the voices and make getting a, a feeling like I was in the room with a couple of people having a conversation got me through half a day or whatever, you know, it, um, it really was meaningful. Just that little mini dose of connection. And it wasn't even like real connection. It was like borrowing someone else's connection with another person. Right. right. And, you know, you're, you're, you're a healthy fit guy. You know, the, the, um, the, the toll that it took on elderly folks, on folks who were sick, you know, not having any human connection. My wife is a physician and just seeing the incredible, just devastating health impacts on people dying, frankly, because there was nobody there to talk to. There was no one there to connect with. They've lost that connection you know, because of whatever, you know, policies or, you know, the, the impact of how we were adapting to the pandemic, you know, not to mention what happened in the, you know, sort of social life of children who didn't have the opportunity to interact in schools and their capacity to learn and to even to, to socialize. Uh, it, it is absolutely devastating. And, you know, again, not to be political about it, um, it helped to highlight this um, extraordinary need to address the epidemic of loneliness and disconnection. This is a huge issue. It's an issue that COVID exacerbated. And, you know, fortunately, we're, we're mostly out of that right now, but it has highlighted something that we've got to pay attention to. The, the, you know, these things are, are, are causing um, some, some extraordinarily negative health impacts, you know, all, all around society. How does someone um, take it advantage of these opportunities, these councils that you're a part of? Um, I mean, it sounds like there's within organizations that organize, but what if someone's not in one of those organizations and they hear what you're talking about and they're like, I need a little of that in my life. Yeah. Is it open to the public? Are these, um, yes, do they course. pop up in different <laughs> towns and you could just show up or how does it work? Um, you know, I'll just say something about the book because we uh, we had uh, programs, as I mentioned, in, in dozens of prisons that all got shut down, of course. We couldn't go into prisons for a couple of years, but we have grants, right? We got these grants from from the, the state government saying, you know, here's this money to go into prisons. And we're like, well, we can't go into prisons. What are we going to do? Um, we realized that there were individuals who were incarcerated who were writing letters saying, I feel so alone. The guys I used to meet with and talk to, I can't talk to. They won't let me out of the cell. What do I do? We wound up actually accumulating letters from a circle of 25, putting them together in a kind of a newsletter, uh, offering a mindfulness activity and a meditation, and then with the compiled shares, attaching a couple of blank pages at the end and sending it back to folks. So they would sit in their cell and they would do this meditation 
and they would read the voices, you know, the written shares in the voices of those who were in their circle. And then it came to the blank page and then they would basically receive the talking piece and write their share and send it back to us in an envelope. And then we compiled it again and sent it back to them. And we went back and forth with uh, a, a lot of folks who were stuck and unable to connect. And in doing that, just as you had the voices of the podcast folks, you know, hosts and guests in your ears, they were able to listen in to the shares that were written authentically in the, in the handwriting of those uh, colleagues that they sat in council with, and it gave them some support. We also realized, it, realized we needed to um, kind of go over the things that council is. And so we said to, you know, the government, let us write a book and finance it. Let us send it to everybody who's incarcerated who might benefit. And so they paid for the creation of the first version of Where Compassion Begins, which was all for incarcerated folks. And as we were doing it, we thought, well, this needs to be something that reaches people more than uh, those who are in prison. So the other version of this is for general audiences, and that's the one that's on Amazon. And, you know, folks get it when they donate to our organization. We send them a free copy of this, and it really gives folks the groundwork that they need in order to understand what counsel is, but then on their own, you know, to practice a mindfulness activity, to pay attention to the color green in their life or how they enter into spaces or, you know, what food tastes like as they eat it, you know, simple mindfulness activity, and then a, maybe a, a prompt to be considering and then something to take into a circle. So it might be your family or it might be your colleagues at work, it might be, uh, you know, any group of folks that you want to get together and have a conversation with it doesn't have to be perfect, but it's a chance to practice counsel. And the whole second part of the book is encouragement and 24 separate assignments to do this on your own. Ideally, you'll have a chance to come and sit with us. One of our trainers will lead a workshop and you'll show up and you'll spend two days learning this practice. Whether you sign up for it and come to a council training workshop, or it comes to your organization or part of the school that you're part of the community that, that supports, um, we're doing this all over. We have training. So there's training workshops where people could go to learn about how to be a facilitator or when you learn the practice of counsel, you leave those two days, you know, uh, with enough information to be dangerous, right? You, <laughs> you then can, people take it back to their families and say, I want to try something, or they okay. take it into their workplace, or they want to introduce it to their school. Those two day trainings are incredibly powerful. And yes, you become a participant, but you also learn what it means to facilitate. So when one comes to one of those, it really gives you everything you need to begin to practice in this way. There's also an online version of these gatherings that anyone can sign up for. And people do from not only just around the country, but folks from Europe and Africa drop in at all kinds of times of day, which is confusing. How do people access that? Where is that? So our website is centerforcouncil.org. And on the first page, there's a, a way to sign up for social connection councils. And they're offered throughout the month. It's a nominal fee that, you know, you can kind of give us five bucks or 10 bucks and, and attend one. Or if you want to become a donor, you get to come for free. And it's a way to support the organization and actually participate in council and hopefully kind of encourage you to see the value of a practice like this. Maybe you'll want to buy the book and learn more about it. Maybe you'll come to one of the trainings we do, or maybe, you know, your workplace or your school will, you know, be in need and you'll reach out and arrange to have us come and we'll send a couple of trainers to train up a staff and to get this embedded in the culture of your workplace and the culture of your school. Um, we have law enforcement now that is very interested in this practice. So 
after we did seven cohorts with the Los Angeles Police Department and the results were so striking, all of a sudden we were getting calls from other police departments and from local philanthropists saying, you know, these these officers are, are in, in a lot of trouble. There are all kinds of suicidality and depression. Can you come to my municipality and teach these folks counsel? And so we've gone to Jacksonville, Florida and to, you know, various places where we have been asked to come and offer these trainings around the country. And we've developed a partnership now with the Department of Justice um, that has recognized that in helping to resource law enforcement officers, there needs to be innovation. Folks are not getting trained in these ways, not only for their health, but for how we can bring compassion into the interactions between police and communities. And so we're very grateful for this collaboration with the Department of Justice in, in Washington. I mentioned that I've been spending some time on the, on the East Coast as part of the National Officer Wellness and Safety Work Group that the DOJ has put together. And I'm thrilled to make this available throughout the country and um, you know and beyond. So a lot of ways to connect. I think the website, um, centerforcouncil.org is a good place to kind of get a flavor of this. And if folks wanna understand where we're going with this, our new initiative is called beyondusandthem.org. And beyond us and them really is why do this work? Why is it important? And how do we get folks that are not only law enforcement officers, but what about the folks coming out of prison? Can we put them together? And what happens when we have, you know, kids in school and teachers or, you know, folks who are in industry and others who are in the social justice field? What if we put those folks into a council circle and see what happens when folks who consider themselves adversaries or somehow oppositional because of their politics, because of, you know, their identification? Is it possible to weave together this sense of beloved community? And that's kind of where we're headed with our work and you know, folks who are listening to this who think that this is a, a worthy cause and want to find out about it could certainly learn about it and hopefully jump on board because we need all the support we can get. Yeah, that sounds great. And we'll link to the two websites, the centerforcouncil.org and uh, beyondusandthem.org. Yeah, and uh, definitely encourage folks to check it out. And, um, you know, hopefully you're feeling generous and contribute. Uh, Jared, it sounds like you're really doing some important work. And I'm really grateful that people like you exist, man. Um, it's it's great to chat with you and I'm I'm grateful that you took the time to chat with us on the podcast. Is there anything else you'd want to touch on before I let you go, before I start disrespecting your time here? I'm looking at the clock. (laughs) You know, I, 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 I just want to say that, you know, what you and Sarah are doing in terms of, you know, getting this message out is it's just a really important time for us to be paying attention. And it begins by, you know, understanding what attention looks like. You know, we can zip through our day and think we're kind of checking the boxes and getting through everything. But in a moment where we slow down and actually, you know, kind of move towards a, a sense of a deeper appreciation of the present moment, we recognize that there's a lot going on that we haven't noticed, including um, the experience of those around us who we may not be paying enough attention to and the capacity to really cultivate that ability to slow down, to pay attention, to learn how to self-regulate and to be able to speak and to listen from the heart is incredibly beneficial. It's beneficial, like I said, to our health, to our relationships and to you know society and culture writ large. So I'm, I wanna congratulate you and appreciate you guys for doing what you're doing and um, for inviting me to, to be part of this conversation. I hope it continues to be something that folks really lean into because there's a lot of work to do. Well, absolutely uh, glad to be a conduit for your message. It's a beautiful message for the listeners out there. Always grateful for your listening. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and I hope everyone has a terrific day. Jared, thanks for talking to me today. Thanks, Les. Appreciate it. 
Thanks again for listening, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I sure did. I'm very optimistic when I hear that there's organizations out there doing this kind of work. Uh, it makes me feel good just hearing about it. I know that personally, it feels like an uphill battle trying to stay positive sometimes when I think about the collective suffering that permeates the social fabric of this planet. And it's nice to connect with someone like Jared to, to inspire and to make me, um, to really reinstill some hope in my mind and hopefully in the listeners too. Uh, I encourage you to play a bigger role, check out the websites and if it's good fit, see if you could uh, connect and contribute. And uh, once again, thanks for tuning in. And if you think you know someone that would appreciate this conversation, please send it their way. Have a great day.